Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Cup Reviews, brought to you by Cup of Hemlock Theater. I am your host, man who is co-producer of all things The Cup, Mackenzie, and I'm joined by a wonderful panel of old hats who have graced our screens before. First off, we have Max, who is joining us once again. Last time we saw him, it was in our episode on Indecent way back last year around the holiday time so max tell us how are you what's in your cup what have you been up to uh i'm great thanks in my cup tonight is peppermint tea trying to fend off the uh the early fall colds as it were um yeah and i've um uh, my company, Dandelion Theater, has been hard at work. We've got some things that we'll be announcing shortly uh, for October, which is very exciting. Um, uh, Assembly Theater, uh, where I serve as director of production, is taking indoor bookings again, finally. So that's also been a very exciting um, time for us. And uh, yeah, it's it's been a it's been a really wonderful uh, wonderful start to fall. Sure, love it, love it, love it, love it. And then returning. From her time in the realm of Mary Shelley and Frankenstein and Benedict Cumberbatch is none other than the wonderful Izzy. (laughs) Hello, Izzy. How are you? Welcome back. What have you been up to since Frankenstein? Anything Um, exciting in the world of Izzy? No, I mean, I have been working. (laughs) Just working. Yeah, I've started my, I think last time we talked was like back in the summer and um I have started my Metcalf internship, so uh, two places, which I thought was going to be easy, but spoiler alert, it's not. It's just two jobs, so um, that's that's kind of just what I've been up to. Oh, and like just doing some uh, stuff, like creative things. Like I have two plays that I'm working on. That one will be out in February, and hopefully the other one end, end of next year, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> love it. Love it, love it. And what's in your cup? Um, I have chamomile tea today. I almost did peppermint, yeah. um, but I didn't <laughs> so yeah. Tea love it today. Ryan, how are you? I'm okay, Mac. How are you? Good, Good to be here. I um, know. Long time see. no see with you. I know, right? Uh, excited to talk about every man. Yes. Um, fun play in my cup. I was gonna have tea as I so often do. Also, it's my the cup cup. But um, I decided, fitting with the themes of every man, I think I just want something that's like the lifeblood of all people, the elixir of life, something great equalizer. So I went with water, not something, you know, that, you know, is maybe more culturally specific like tea or has ties with imperialism like tea as much. You know, that's debatable. <laughs> um, yeah, so. Yes, right, because that's all, what we all were thinking about with tea was imperialism. Yes. Uh, you never know. But, you know, all humans must consume water. So it felt like it fit the theme. How about you, Nick? Well, uh, tonight I am also drinking water, but it is a crystallite water uh, that I have flavored with some orange tangerines and grapefruit. So yum, yum. There we go. Well, why don't we head into this play, this classical text? has been modernized, as it were, to star the wonderful Chiwetel Ejiofor, who many know from his works in, from Doctor Strange, 12 Years a Slave. Uh, he, he's, he's a master of, of the craft. Like, 
Ryan, I, I don't know. Like, what other ones would be well known at this point? Like, he first came on my radar in Serenity, which ah, was like, yeah, yeah. Was he in Love Actually as well. Was he? Yeah, he's pretty, pretty prolific. I mean, you see him in a, a ton of things as well. Yeah, he's he was always in, in wasn't stuff. he in Kinky Boots, like the film version of Kinky yes, Boots? Yes, he was. To my That's correct. Yes, he was. Yes, like what a talented, yes. like yeah, very like versatile actor that done yes. so many different like roles. So excited to see yes. him in this and yes. excited to yeah. Yeah, dive right in. Well, let's dive right in with our very first question of what did we think of Chiwetel Ejiofor's performance of Everyman? Max, I'll let you start this one. I think it's great. I mean, <laughs> I think it's great. I think he's he's a fantastic actor. I mean, if in in things that are sort of more for shall we say contemporary sensibilities and and you know more popular culture aligned, he's fantastic and he has that sort of charisma and grace to handle a wide breadth of roles. And I think, I mean, Every Man is a very challenging play to do for many reasons, and I think. You know, it's a lot to take on to play the character of every man. And um, I think he does, handles it with the same grace. And and uh, there's a real sort of, despite it being a play about a fall from grace, sort of, and a, and a fall from dignity, that he does Literally approach it with a real... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so he does approach it with a, with a real dignity that I think is... is, is well well earned and, and adds a really important and, and I think uh, interesting depth to the character. Well said. Izzy, what were your thoughts? Um, I I mean I'm not gonna sit here and be like, oh, you know, critique this uh this performance. It was so it was really, really well done. And I think what stood out to me about the performance was um I was hesitant going into like this play. I was like, oh it's a morality play. So like the character's gonna do a complete like 180 by like the end and like that's like hard to pull off I think but I did believe it like it was believable um in such a like short-ish kind of period of time um I really did believe like that whole journey and that was what stood out to me because I was like oh they could just do it can make it like really cheesy but they didn't and it was really good yeah well said Ryan what were your thoughts yeah well I'm just gonna jump on this praise pile because yeah he's wonderful no yeah like I'm waiting to hear what you're gonna say but um no (laughs) no I I have no critiques I think it's a flawless performance he's just so like so strong in every single moment we do see him go through this entire descent toward redemption like which arguably a kind of like ascent at the end um, yeah, and he's just like handles it so masterfully from beginning to end. And something that I just think is so interesting about this performance is that it's the first time I've ever seen every man as an actual character, because like by the nature of the genre of this medieval morality play, he isn't supposed to be like a, a three-dimensional human being. He is supposed to be this stand-in allegorical figure that can be all people, and the less specific he is, the better in that regard for achieving that goal but i i was impressed with the way he characterized this performance that he made him not necessarily every man but a man and he kind of found this individual rhythm that really suited this production very well and maybe as we talk further we'll see does it necessarily suit the play but i thought it was so extraordinary for what this production was trying to do and he did it excellently yes yes well i will forth all this and say he was fantastic uh, he naturally pulled the focus and held it for the audience. 
when a character isn't given that much development in the sense of who this guy is, but yet somehow the production made him well developed and you could identify him and uh, follow his journey really well. He did a great job, as as he said, tracking his character growth and change throughout this piece. I thought that was really well done. I mean, you literally could physically see the amount of work he was putting into his performance through his ample sweat that was literally like just pouring down his face by the end. Like it was like, holy cow, like he is giving literally blood, blood and sweat to this performance in so many ways. So he was wonderful. And I mean, I will say, I love the idea of, of his casting because as we know from, from people who study the, the history of, 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 of humanity, we all came from Africa. So the fact that it's a BIPOC actor, it's nice that it's like hearkening, uh, for me, hearkened back to almost that concept of we all came from the same spot, the same place in the world and have dispersed out from there. But it's nice to kind of go back to that concept of every man started from here. Well, so yeah, I, I thought that was I a neat thought. Jump onto that, like if anyone can play every man that's kind of the point that's yeah. no, no like i think there's a tendency to default to oh the, every man has to be a white guy because that's what the medieval european audience would yeah. have seen him as but we have mm-hmm. just different ideas about the diversity of the human race yeah. and i think yeah so we don't even have to historicize it the way you've done about no no no, 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 no. yeah anybody can, oh, we'll get into this question but like yes anybody can play that role and i mean i thought it was just a nice extra touch and it was like if you wanted to read that deep you could go that deep sure well, it's gonna how can i go layered performance like that and chutology for it certainly gave us that so but he wasn't the only one on stage as you can see behind me he had a wonderful ensemble who worked with him and gave him some great people to play off of so izzy uh what other member of the ensemble stood out to you i have three names down i Ooh. i think everyone i don't know like I think that they all played really well with each other, um, but uh, I don't even think this is counts as ensemble either. Um, but I think Death is actually like the um, Derm- Dermo Crowley, I believe. Um, I can't read yeah. my own writing, um, <laughs> but yeah, Death was like just one of my favorite characters and like really interestingly played, and I really really enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed that performance. I also enjoyed um, the performance of the mother. Um, which was Sharon D. Sharon D. Clark, um, and Knowledge, which was Penny Layden. I just think that um, I think we'll talk about this more, but like bringing like uh, an individualism to these characters that are normally and typically like just very much like uh, stand-ins for like themes. Um, it was really interesting because you got invested in it, and and there, especially like the the, the mother. Um, and the way that her, I don't know, his emotional journey, like every man's emotional journey was like very tied to the mother, especially kind of like near the climax. Um, I really loved and, and just powerful vocals in that, uh, piece where she was singing as well. Yeah. Well said, well said. I mean, yeah, Ryan, go ahead. Because I also had a triple pick, but it was more of a kind of cohesive trio here is the family, the sister, mother, and father, um, mm. sister played by Michelle Butterfly, mother by Sharon D. Clark, as you said, Izzy, and the father by Philip Martin Brown. I thought the three of them together, especially in that one scene where uh, he goes to visit his family, hope they'll follow him on his journey. It, it just added so much texture to the story just by the same logic that I was impressed at how Ejiofor made every man a character 
going to visit kinship, his family, which in the original text would ideally just be like one person or maybe a Greek chorus of a crowd that represents mm-hmm. the idea of family. I was just so impressed at the way these three actors imbued these characters with their own mm-hmm. life, this inner world, this texture that really, once again, it goes into this idea of individualizing the everyman, but mm-hmm. giving them like a backstory. And I know a lot of that comes to the writing too, which we'll talk about more later, but I did love the way these three actors handled right. these roles. Like the father's Alzheimer's was like very like potent. And like, I know I have some experience with that with members of my family and maybe struck a chord there, but the sisters like, um, yeah, like brute determination or she had like a grit to her it was like very like interesting and then of course Izzy the praise you told on the mother's performance I'd have to echo that too because it was wonderful and I just loved this family unit it was definitely the standout scene for me when he returned to them yeah yeah I mean I'll piggyback off Izzy a little bit because my shout-out actually was also death by uh Dermot Crowley because I love the fact first of all that they made him a crime scene cleanup guy with this little hazmat booties and suit on i was like perfect little hint of, of like death showing up there and like the audiences don't know the story that he falls to his death so the fact that you have this crime scene guy playing death it was just such a perfect way to interpret that character and that's like his kind of wry sense of humor he had that that he every time he showed up it was just this nonchalant it's almost the family guy level of like the way they personify death it's this kind of really chill kind of kind of down-to-earth guy where he's like yep I'm here to come and get you. Like right, you died. Or McDonald's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I mean that. So yeah, he was just so wonderful, and it made kind of it almost scary in a way because Death was such an inviting presence on stage. He was such a welcome performance that I was like, oh, I don't know if I should be welcoming Death so much on this. No, that's the thesis of the play. You should be. It's okay. Yes. Embrace exactly. It. Well, see, then they did an even better job. Because it was just fantastic. Because I thoroughly enjoyed that performance. Every time he came on stage, I was like, "Oh, okay." I almost would want like a sequel of like Every Man and, and Death doing like a buddy cop, like like <laughs> a, a adventure together <laughs> in the afterlife. <laughs> but who knows? Maybe they're off to go collect some more bodies, and, and Every Man's now like Death's assistant, and he has to kind of help court the people. I don't know. That'd be a funny sequel. Play. Ryan, write that play. Your, it's your idea. You write it. <laughs> <laughs> Max, who was your shout out? Do we steal all of yours or is there still somebody up your sleeve? I mean, I think that all of your picks were, uh, you know, obviously very memorable. For sure, Death plays like an incredible role. And and Dermot Crowley is, I think, aptly dry and spooky in the same breath. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's a very, it's a... I, I am, I'm like, I always gravitate towards plays that have interesting ways of depicting the afterlife and sort of larger than life figures, God and gods and demons mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, for that reason, you know, I think the two that have not, I mean, Sharon D. Clark as the mother is, is really profoundly impactful. I think that that is, that is a really, uh, a really impressive performance with not necessarily that much to work with and which makes it all the more impressive that this character is not just one that sticks with you but one that you understand and that you know like I think that that was mm-hmm. something very recognizable for me it was that that, that 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 mother character mother trying to defend her son is like such a it, it, it she just played it masterfully I think um I think Kate Duchesne as God is a really interesting and very understated performance. I think that, you know, 
I've, I don't know if I've spoken this about this with you guys before, as we, you know, it is a, a, a he, for is a Marvel actor. And, you know, in the Marvel universe, this concept of God also goes often very understated as a beggar or as, mm-hmm. you know, someone, a homeless person. And yeah. I, I, that's where my, my mind goes, but I, I do think that there is this real, you know, it gets back to the word, the, the, the word dignity and, and this, that sort of quality of quiet contemplation that she brings to that role that, it's not this awesome sort of biblical power, but rather it's the person who comes in to clean up after you, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, I think w- with that, you know, knowledge, Penny Layden um, also gives a really wonderful performance. Uh, obviously all of these characters serve to complement the performance of Chimitelegi for in some way that, that, you know, as we discussed, every man, the titular character, every man's the focus. And she would tell you for owns that spotlight and, and makes it his own. I think that, you know, in, in everything we've talked about, since there, I, I agree that there are many names that could have been brought up. You know, this really does become an ensemble show. That the ensemble is really, really strong in this. That it's not just that each individual actor, generally speaking, I think, is giving really impressive performance, but also that they are listening and uh, communicating with each other very effectively. And I think, you know, that shows in the movement of this play, that shows in the, the sequences that are, you know, long sequences without speech. Um, I think that across the board, it's a very impressive showing from, from the whole ensemble. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed on all fronts. Well said, one and all. So let's get into now what was our favorite production or design element. And I'll start this one because this is one that I don't want anybody else to steal right away. But I love the stage magic in this. They had so many great, fun little tricks that they did. Like either people, uh, my favorite was the um, disappearing chorus in that curtain machine that kind of yeah. came along the bench Super and snapped cool. them all yeah. up at the end. I thought that was such a fun concept. And just like the live onstage photos that they were taking and the following projections like, and just the way they kind of interlaced that with True to Ledger before following in the opening. I thought that was, there was just so many great little bits and also the way the stage, you could come up and down like almost you were coming out of the underworld to have a moment. It was just so well done. I mean, that stage magic of just having this ever flowing piece without without using the iconic turntable, which a lot of people would turn to, to kind of move things around on stage. But the fact that they found other unique ways of getting people on and off so naturally for me, I just thought that was just a really well done bit of, direction and stage magic by uh, Rufus and his team. It was just such a mesmer, it was just such a way that you always kept wondering what's the next trek that's going to be coming like whether it was the garbage the garbage demon things yeah. that looks like that, that, that almost like the, um, that just like looks like piles of dirt or garbage and they actually started moving and I was like oh like oh it was just <laughs> it was just a new surprise at every turn. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Ryan, what were your standouts? Uh well yeah, I, I was I was certainly considering the stage magic and like those images in particular, but I thought someone else is going to do it. I should come up with a backup. So I'm glad I did. (laughs) Um, I really like the music and the sound design in particular with this piece and especially like opening with the kind of rave party, happy birthday sequence really does set the tone for this production in an interesting Mm -hmm. way that, and then the sound design as it develops through and takes on some more, Mm -hmm. I don't even know if religious tones is necessarily the right words for it, but like, yeah, the development from very contemporary party Mm -hmm. music into that, I think 
created just such a great atmosphere that and like yeah the edm dubstep like it, it just it's not what you expect to see when you're like oh yeah i'm gonna see a medieval morality play and mm-hmm. it was a perfect way to just draw you into the world and the this ain't your grand great 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 grandfather's every man i guess sir <laughs> i loved how they um get to medieval times uh, yeah. uh bastardize the, the the classic rogers and hammerstein song you'll never walk alone which is a very did iconic... they bastardize it though i thought oh they did well. that, that that song is supposed to be this beautiful angelic funeral piece that sung when minor spoiler alert for a very old musical see it's it's interesting though because that's also a very famous uh like soccer chant yes Um, it is you'll never walk alone and so that's like it's i it took on that sort of hooliganism that i think is often associated with like the liverpool football club you know what i mean oh yeah trust (laughs) me it's beautiful when you watch a whole stadium i remember when i was um uh in wales for, for for watching a rugby game in cardiff and part of the pre-show for that is the audience sings. And they sang, this was one of the songs they sang because it's a big, no, well-known piece of music. And it, it does represent death. It is the song that is sung to, as Billy Bigelow walks to heaven's gates at the end, it's sung to him as he's dying at the end of act one. Like it's a very iconic death uh, choral piece of music. And yet here it is, it's been hooliganized in this wonderful party way and almost a bit of a mockery of, death itself the fact that they use it at the party with that happy laughing birthday happy having birthday yeah and like the fact that yeah, the fact that it has become like this like sports associated hooligan chant, like yeah. and but it does come from this very like funeral evocative yes. death like that's kind of what at least this adaptation of every man is doing. It's taking mm-hmm. the somberness and trying yeah. to reconnect us with the mm-hmm. with the fear of that while kind of keeping yeah. it grounded in, in the human realm in a way mm-hmm. that certainly are and a medieval audience probably wouldn't have thought to do with it. So there is a if you really want to see a beautiful version of that song, the uh, BBC proms did a concert of Rodgers and Hammerstein music and they stream it to all parts of the UK. And so when that song came on, they cut to all different parts of the UK throughout the video and they're all singing it in perfect unison. So it's like a whole nation is singing this one song. It's stunning. It's a beautiful. Also beautiful early piece. in the pandemic, Marcus Mumford released a version of it for charity, which was also pretty good. It, it, it's, it's a very iconic, well-known song that they wrote in, uh, that they wrote in like six hours when they needed an act one closer. <laughs> Good old Roger and Hammerstein, you know, great piece of music. But yeah, I love, yeah, the music is an awesome choice, Ryan. And I love the fact they did this kind of cheeky way of doing the music. They kept coming back. I was I was having the happy birthday chant uh, around my kitchen tonight as I prepped for, for the show. So it's there. It's wonderful. Izzy, what was your show now? Um, I really liked, uh, I, again, I think the set stuff was so good, but I really liked the projections and the lighting. Um, that was so cool. Um, I loved, um, all of the, especially when he's falling kind of through like various screens. Like I thought that was really, really interesting. And I like, I kind of said this last time at Frankenstein as well. I just like when, when big budgets are used really effectively, you know, and I'm like, yes, this is what you should be doing with all this big money. Please make it interesting and visually appealing. And um, I think that it was, it was, it really, with projections and stuff like that, sometimes it feels like it's just there for whatever. I felt a little bit like that for the selfies. I was like, this is very 2015. Um, but <laughs> I I did think that it added to, 
this feeling and especially like at the beginning where they're trying to establish that he falls like they were almost like alluding to it they're like he's gonna fall that's how he's gonna die and like seeing all of that kind of in the background was really really cool because then it allowed it allowed um for like him not to actually have to fall but like still act through those emotions and I don't know I just thought it was really effective um and I also like the music I like I like the bells the bells are my favorite part and um, it was very nostalgic for me um because I am like I consider myself culturally catholic um I'm mm-hmm. not practicing but I grew up in, in a catholic church in a very catholic um kind of like area <laughs> and uh yeah, like the bells are always used to signify like something really, really important or like um, when something sacred is happening. So uh, that like immediately like clicked for me. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like, I, I, and I don't know, it was very nostalgic for me. Mm-hmm. Love that. Love that. Max, what's, yeah, I mean, what's there for I, you to shout out? I think you guys have all basically touched on it. But I think for me, the, you know, this is a very challenging play to direct. And I think that the direction of it is really intelligent for the most part. I think that visually it's an, it's a stunning piece of work. Like I think that, you know, between the project, the projection, the lighting and the blocking, it's, it's pretty, imp- I mean, like the blocking is really impressive in a lot of contexts. I mean, one, one moment that was particularly striking to me is, you know, you get your sort of pieta at the end which is actually, you know, you get your very um, intense technological uh, visuals, you get your projections, you get that sort of those lightning bolts and those those uh, big ensemble movement pieces, which I will also say, you know, to, to shout out to um, uh, Javier De Frutos, who's the mm-hmm. choreographer and the movement director, because there was really crisp and, and clear, I think, the movement throughout this piece. And then, you know, when he gets to his... Um, his confrontation with knowledge and at the end of it, they're sort of, you know, uh, um, sympathizing with each other and, and, and you get that Pieta of her holding him sort of drawing on the classical, uh, uh, the classical illusions of the play. And, you know, the fact that, oh, you know, how, how closely are every man and Jesus Christ linked, you know? And mm-hmm. um, I, I think that it was very smart direction. It's, it's, it's sort of, um a welcome weirdness you know it's certainly not as weird as we might get with with something you know german theater or swiss theater <laughs> even but 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 i think especially for english theater it does have a a tinge of of the absurd and the bizarre that that we are entering an otherworldly space and and that between the projection the sound design the core the this sort of electronic versus choral singing we get this very ethereal idea of this is a space that exists outside of our own reality mm-hmm. and, and and a construction of our reality as well, but that they sort of create this contrast of theatrical environment that mm-hmm. that I think is really striking and impossible to look away from. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, reg- I think, you know, even if the performances weren't great and the directing and the writing wasn't really strong, the visuals could still hold this play together. And I know, you know, some people might disagree with me that a performance can stand on one element alone, but I really do think that like as a piece of visual art, this, this play is very impressive. Love that. Love that. 
And Max, since you uh, ended our last section, I'll let you start this next section. Which oh, great. Is, uh, what was the weakest aspect of the production for you? As you seem when to be alluding to some areas. to the worst. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I, well, I mean, the fact is, I don't know if I have necessarily a, a, a least favorite element of the production. I really enjoy this production. I mean, I do think that British theater and by virtue, you know, Canadian theater, because we draw most of our influences from the British, can be a bit tame in some contexts. Mm. And there are places that I would have loved this production to have gone further. Um, in, in the bizarre nature of it, in the really sort of foreign and weird nature of the play, it's not a play that is modern. It is relevant for sure, but but it's not a modern play. Like this is a this is a, a, a an archaic or perhaps not an archaic or antiquated, but old style of theater. You know what I mean? Like medieval drama is a very different technique, and and I sort of would have loved to have seen. You know, just a sort of hint at perhaps a bit more of that 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 recognition that we are divorcing ourselves from, mm -hmm. uh, you know, anything in the same way that you know, like that, like you said, Izzy, that the the selfies felt very 2015. That I was like, I, surely that there there could have been a choice made that could have represented a similar thing, uh, but wasn't that 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 wasn't chosen. Like that, I think. You know, for example, there's a lot of, in the blocking of the play, a lot of references to the audience, that every man is looking out at the audience, or that all the ensemble is looking out at the audience. But the audience, we never actually see the audience, and the audience never actually becomes part of the play. And I think one of the things that would have been interesting, since it is a morality play, and it is a sort of allegorical drama of us, like we're, it's a Christian play, we're not supposed to be, feel good at the end of it, like yeah. it's, it's, it's a play that is supposed to teach us something. Um, I would have, I think, appreciated perhaps a bit more of a nod to the audience as well. But I, I'm, I'm also really just sort of finding things to complain about, which is one of my favorite things to do. Um, <laughs> it, it was a great production. And I think it, it checks a lot of the boxes. But like, if I had to pick, I, I would say maybe, you know, we could go more weird and we could go more into the, the sort of metatheatrical element of it. But once again, I, I think it's a great production. Ryan? Like what I have to say kind of fits into maybe that a little bit from a certain point of view. Um, but this is the part where I'm probably going to sound like a hypocrite and I don't, I don't like it and I don't know how to feel about it. But <laughs> I, I, I love the production. Like I'm going to preface all this with that. But my kind of big sort of weakest element in my mind might be the thing that I've been praising in the three previous questions. And that is how contemporary it feels it is. And I think this is why I say it relates to what Max was just talking about is because I feel a big disconnect between what Carol Ann Duffy has tried to do in her modernization adaptation here and what the play Everyman is. And mm -hmm. we might have room to talk more about this in a subsequent question. So I don't want to get too much into it here. Suffice it to say, without kind of spilling more into that, I don't think this critique sinks the production at all. I just feel a bit of a strange dissonance between the two. Part of me doesn't really know what the production is trying to say by smashing these two seemingly oppositional forces together. 
Mm-hmm. And but I do appreciate the boldness of the attempt, and I admire it. And it did make for what I think is a very fascinating piece of theater that I want to, I just yeah want to have conversations with like the people in it, and I want to be like, okay, how was what elements of like the medieval kind of source was discussed in like the conception of this piece, and how much are we engaging with the 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 idea of you are representing every man, yet you seem like such a fully rounded specific individual here Mm -hmm. so do these two ideas really gel and we'll maybe get more into this in a subsequent question so i will leave it at that but i yeah like i said it doesn't sink the production and i think it it results in something very fascinating i'm just not always sure if it works at every given moment of the production fair 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 izzy what stood out to you i'm trying to like put my thoughts into words i think you did a lot of it um ryan um but i think what I, again, like echoing everyone else, I loved this production. I thought it was really, really cool, really interesting. Um, but I feel like it was just trying too hard to be medieval. Like I felt it, I think the thing that tipped me off to it was when they were doing the medieval kind of music um, between, I was like, you don't need this here. You know, like we know it's a medieval morality play. And even if I didn't, I feel like they could have divorced themselves more from it. Like it just make a different play. Like it's fine. We take inspiration from things all the time. You don't have to say like, this is an ad- adaptation of this medieval morality play. Like you could just say like, I'm going to make a play about morality and it's going to be like on a, like all these like same themes and like maybe it will have the same structure and all that kind of stuff. But you don't have to like, like hold, like just let go, you know, just let go, let it be its own thing. It's fine. Um, but yeah, I think, I think every time that they tried to like call it back to, to that medieval influence or like, in some instances, I thought it was nice. Like I liked the little quotes and stuff, um, like kind of put in there. It kind of felt like, like poetry, um, throughout. So I, I could like spot little bits of like lines and, and text and stuff that makes sense mm-hmm. and complement it. But there are, there were parts where I was like, just make another play. It's fine you can do that we give you permission just step away i'm glad you're bringing this up because this is something that i was planning on talking about in the subsequent question but like yeah let's get into it now a little bit throw off my order ryan but i'll well no i still have things to say for the later but like since you brought up like yeah why why lean into the medievalness of it like every man as like a brand because that's basically i think what they're trying to use it as here doesn't have like a lot of cultural currency to anyone who didn't go to theater school like like, it's it's so funny because i like when i hear that 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 those like medieval songs i'm like ah yeah because you went to theater school all four of us in this room did but like um but to me like it's not hamlet it doesn't mean much to just like you know joe and nancy theater going public like it, it means a lot to us because we like, oh, we read it in first year and we wanted to, you know, oh, I remember this and how are they going to portray it? But I kind of feel like the extent of liberties that uh, Caroline Duffy took with her adaptation here kind of makes it, it divorces it from being every man. And why, why bother? You could say it's inspired by every man or it's a contemporary take on every man. That's how you do it. But I, I don't, I don't think there's enough of like thematically structurally the point of every man isn't present in what we're given here 
And, you know, I'm, I'm all for adaptation. and I'm not, like, you know, dinging yet for lack of fidelity to the source. I just don't know why bother announcing the source when it might have worked better as an appropriation of every man rather than an adaptation of every man, to use the terminology, like, in the two terms given to us by Julie Sanders in her book, Adaptation and Appropriation. Right. Right, right. Okay. I still have more to say later. So oh, okay. Move on. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll say for me, I don't know what it is about these last two NTS episodes we've done, but it's I, I've come across the same stumbling block. Is it, it, It's the first 20 minutes. I, I wasn't a big fan of the first 20 minutes of Frankenstein running it or the monster running in a circle for 20 minutes or longer. And I was, and the, I felt the party scene was just went on a little bit too long. I got the concept of what they were going for. That it was a raucous party. But I was like, I got that after 10 minutes and then it just kept going and going. The book scene like, was really long. Like it was weirdly long. Yeah. <laughs> we had to it sit was, in it for a while. Exactly. So I, I will I, remind I, us all because we all read it in theater school. This is a very short play, Every Man. It's like yeah. 10 pages in an anthology. Like, yes. It's uh, so, yeah, I, I, watching that, I agree. It went on a little long, but I'm like, well, yeah, how do you turn Every Man into like a feature length? Something? It's an hour. I also, and I, I also do minutes. think that. <laughs> I, well, yeah, I mean, it is, it's not super, it's not a super long play in this production, but I also do think that, like, to a degree that, while I agree with you that, yeah, I mean, the first 20 minutes of a play are crucial for holding an audience's attention, that there is something to be said for a repeated action for what seems like too long. Like, I think that, that, it, that forces us to ask a very important question of, like, why are we are we uncomfortable? Are we like, why do we? I was just bored. <laughs> well, because I, I think that it's, it, it caused me to question where the director wanted my eye to be drawn. And I, well, I do think, you know, that there could have been, you know, maybe a bit cut there. I, I think that a lot of it was very captivating in just those same way that, you know, a dance piece would be that, that I was interested in the intricacy of the movement mm -hmm. and the, the meaning behind it. Now I, you know, like, this is what I do for work. Like, I, yeah. I love that stuff. And so for, like you said, you know, for, for your average theater goer, I can understand how that would be, uh, you know, a bit more challenging. Mm -hmm. But for me, like, I do think that there is something to be said for drawing out our attention, pushing the limits of our attention. And I think that that is, to a degree, you know, what this adaptation is looking at is, you know, how do we hold ourselves like what right. what 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 holds our attention what what takes importance and and so i do think that there is an interesting and i mean obviously you know you get him committing all of his sins and yes. going through all of the you know uh, sinful actions and things yeah. like that so and there is yeah. something also it's not said. not purposeful you know there's something also we said for spending a lot of time in that as really making us appreciate just how much of his life is wasted away yeah. on the yeah. sinful action that a disproportionate amount of the play is spent really cataloging it because mm -hmm. you know on the page to bring it back to that pesky thing we uh, we are introduced to god god introduces death 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 arrives to every man and okay time for me to take your soul we don't get to spend time with yeah. every man, the person committing yeah. these sins, we just take it for granted that you have living flesh, you must have sinned because original sin is a thing. But yeah. uh, so I, I think, yeah, I, I agree. It could have been shorter, maybe, but I do think like cut five minutes because I mean, I get the point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, but, I won't well, disagree with that. I think that like I think what I was trying to say over the top because uh, that's his point, right? Yeah. Like, like his sister calls him out, says it's like you party too hard, like you 
have wasted your life kind of going this direction. It's like, okay, I got that after like 10 minutes, five minutes more would have really pushed my, like was already starting to push me. 20 minutes, I was like, okay, now I, I, the Coke line is still going. We're still singing happy effing birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, for, for me, when thinking about that, it, it becomes a question of like, for me, when it gets boring is when it doesn't seem purposeful is when it seems aimless. And I don't think there was a point at which it didn't seem purposeful. Like, I think that I, I, I still understood, you know, like you said, it was, it's, it is actually about how much time it takes, I think. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think there is a degree to it. And once again, like, I totally get it. Like, you don't, like, if you don't want to watch that, like that makes total sense. It's, it's repetitive and, and, you know, potentially boring. But I, I, like I said, you know, I do think that it's purposeful and therefore still has a certain degree of artistic merit to it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, I mean, like I love some good repetitive stuff, like they're in their most recent uh, revival of the musical company. That's beat that was done in the West End with by directed by Mary Nell. And now it's on Broadway there. They took the whole very iconic TikTok ballet, which originally was like a big uh, sex number. And instead, they made it now into a dream sequence where the female Bobby is seeing her life play out in the repetitiveness of every day of married life. And it really illustrates her fears of married life. And watching that right. and watching that sequence go for three minutes, I was like, oh, smart reinterpretation of that moment. And just the way that like, as a, as a, as a 35 year old female woman who's being pressured into that lifestyle by society, how she would be feeling and facing that problem. Like I'm all for repetitive, but eventually I just kind of go, okay. It's like watching Johnny Lee Miller run in a circle a lot, trying to learn to walk as the monster. I was like, okay, I got the point after a few minutes. It's now like, now you're just kind of really sledgehammering me here. And I don't think audiences need to be sledgehammered. I, I, I think audiences are quick enough to understand something and appreciate the moment. And you can repeat it a few times when it becomes so repetitive that I'm like, okay, I got it. What's next? What's next? Like, move me forward. Move me forward. Trim the fat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Last bit for this section, Ryan, as our resident TA, I would love for you to kick us off because we did read this one in our first year at York in our Origins of Theater class. So would you be willing to show this production if you were teaching an Origins of Theater or, or you were TAing an Origins of Theater class? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I am doing that right now. Um, oh. I don't, every man's, I don't believe, is on the syllabus, though. What? I'm currently TAing. Uh, now we're... With a desk. Know, it's a, yeah, we, we don't get to well as much as we might like to on each period. So we only get one medieval play and we're doing Rusvita because we want to get as many female authors on the syllabus as possible. That's awesome. Uh, not that we don't, it's an anonymous playwright, right? Whoever wrote every man, it could have been female. And Virginia Woolf tells us that throughout most of history, anonymous was female. Um, mm -hmm. But we don't know that. And we know Rosvita holds a special place as the first female uh, playwright in the canon. Um, but no, for just hypothetically, if I was, te uh, you know, teaching in a pedagogical setting, would I show this production? It depends on the function of the class. I would definitely not show students this as like, a, oh, don't worry, you don't have to read it because we're going to watch a production. Because obviously this is very different from the version we would expect them to read on the page. Um, and I, I certainly, by the same logic, stepping outside of pedagogy for a moment, I would be very hesitant to recommend this production to someone who's never read uh, the original text or never seen a more straightforward production of it. 
And I was kind of hinting at this slightly in the previous question, but I, well, I think it's very fascinating what they've done here. And I think great discussions can be had about that. But I do think that kind of veers us away from the historical context of mm-hmm. understanding every man as every man and more understanding what does every man mean in this moment of time in this like, you know, 2015 British theater, uh, but really just trying to make this story contemporary is where I think this production really generates interesting discussion more so than uh, here's an example of this play on stage. Um, and it is an adaptation and by a contemporary playwright. So it's obviously going to have to take those liberties, but, but yeah, I think it would be very fascinating in like a contemporary directing class and okay. What, and if we want to like really look to old pieces done in interesting, innovative ways and ask the questions about whether or not it works or why this text and the classic mm-hmm. dramaturgy question of why this play now. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think I could definitely, I would rec- recommend students to check it out after we've already read it, but I, I feel like it would just distract from the historical education. Mm-hmm. If we'd be like, okay, you've read every man now watch this. And this is how we're spending our class today uh, mm-hmm. in th- that particular setting. Um, but yeah, I, by that same logic though, I will just recommend this play to anyone who is familiar with the piece because I, I want more people to talk about it with because I think it is very fascinating and it's lovely talking to all of you about it right now. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it is just a, a very fascinating piece, very striking directing, excellent acting. And on those terms, I think, yeah, worth the recommendation for sure. Yeah. Wonderful. Max, you mentioned before we started that you were actually uh, uh, talking about this piece with some high schoolers, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so I'm actually, uh, with my high school students, we are studying liturgical drama and mystery plays right now. And it's interesting because I think talking about it in the university context, you know, when we're talking about every man specifically, especially in the original text, I do agree with Ryan, you know, it's not a great, I I think Ryan, you said it really well when, you you know, you said like, if you want to see a production of every man, it's not necessarily the production I would recommend, mm-hmm. but when I'm talking about it, you know, with high school students who are first being introduced to a lot of big ideas about theater, I think, you know, one of the things I want to showcase is here's sort of where the uh, context of the play is situated historically. Here's what it can become. Here's the opportunity mm-hmm. that it holds. And so I think in that context, you know, to show, especially young students, uh, a piece with, a significant degree of, you know, as you guys all said, theater magic, really striking performances, and an interesting adaptation, it, it, it becomes a very interesting teaching tool because then we can say, okay, what, what lines can we draw from this production back to the traditions that we know of medieval drama and guilds and, and, and you know, mansions and all of these things that, that are connected to the more historical context. Yeah. I mean, Obviously, I like I would definitely recommend this production. I would recommend this production to anyone who wants to see, you know, the really impressive and, and sort of wild things that theater can accomplish. Um, watching it, you know, I just couldn't help but thinking, think, you know, like this is it's just such an impressive piece of theater like that, that, that as a, an example of theatrical form, it is so interesting because it takes the sort of really wonderful heightened text, these really striking visuals, impressive emotional performances, impressive sound design, movement, like everything about it is heightened. And so I think, you know, just as a piece of theater, it 
exist really beautifully as itself. As Ryan was saying, you know, the, the, the historical context, if that's really important to you, you know, as, you know, in certainly, class, it, it tends to be. Yeah, exactly. You know, like in, in reference to theater pedagogy and sort of theater history, there, there are definitely, you know, conversations to be had on the effectiveness of this production, but I think just as a theater lover and, and, you know, for, for someone being introduced to the world of what theater can offer in terms of spectacle and imagination that it it's a wonderful piece i think it i i would definitely recommend it and i will be showing it in, in my class because i think that you know especially for young students you know 14 15 year old students there's something very captivating about this kind of performance because I think we we often reserve these kind of spectacular performances for cinema and for film. And there is something really deeply, not necessarily cinematic about it, but but spectacular about it, certainly. That that is something that is hard to accomplish in the theater without a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Izzy, what are your thoughts? Will you be writing home and recommending this to friends and family? Um, yeah, I actually, I think I would, because as you mentioned, like, I don't, I don't teach, so I don't really have anything to add there. But um, I, a lot of my friends are English majors, and we've all taken like medieval lit kind of thing. Um, so I, I feel like it would be interesting for uh, this play in particular, this production in particular, um, would be interesting for finding a, like that link between like, this medieval text and like, the contemporary, which I guess is like 2015, but like still, you know, like the now. Um, I thought that was like really interesting. Um, and I would, I think that there would be a lot of people who would be excited to see something like that. Um, like it teaching wise, like I don't, as I said, I don't really teach, but I do think it's a really great example of like direct, like directing. Like I, I agree with, I, I forget who said it, but like showing this in a directing class would be really interesting. Um, just to see like how far you can go, like how, um, like how to really use an ensemble um, and how to make things like more relevant, like the dramaturgy question of why, why here, why now kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I would, overall, I would recommend it, especially I'm thinking of recommending it to my friends who uh, have studied uh, medieval literature. So mm -hmm. love it. Love it. I mean, for me, I go, yes, I, I'd also recommend this production. I think it's a great teaching tool for, for when, the youth and younger people go, why are we still reading these? Why are we still studying these? I have no interest in theater history and learning the roots of theater. I want to study the moderns. I want to do this. I want to do that. I go, well, there is something to be gained from going back to the roots and learning where the, the tree of theater has grown from. And this is a great way of showing that, yes, it is an old text that, yes, can be dated. And we will get into the datedness of the text down the road in this conversation. But it's like you can like a lot of these older texts you can reinterpret, you can play with. There is some ability to reevaluate, reexamine. What can you pull out that makes it interesting for today's uh, modern audiences? Like I guarantee a lot of those British theater audiences who were sat there and watched this production in 2015 had not read the original Everyman. But this production was well-reviewed. People really liked it. It was like it got picked up and, and got streamed at cineplexes and movie theaters around the world. Now, part of that could be because of True Tell Edge for, part of it could be direction, but I also think it's just because this production is just so, as I think, as Max said, mesmerizing to audiences to watch 
and the theater magic, the direction, the costumes, everything kind of came together to create a really unique piece that is it a direct line from Everyman? Not exactly, we'll get into that. But at the same time, it's a really kind of unique piece on its own that has some really fun visuals and, and some and a really and a really great lead performance by Chusa Legio for that. Uh, that that kind of can oftentimes be overlooked in his vast body of work. You'll forget that he does stage work too, and that he gets featured a lot in NTS stuff. Then he comes back to them. So it's the fact that you kind of can go back into this and kind of see how he did this particular role. So I highly recommend it. I think this is a fun one to show general audiences who may not know every man, but may just get something out of the play, out of the out of the general story that they're trying to tell. So yeah, I'd say give it a watch, you know, have some fun. Go party. Happy mother effing birthday to you too. <laughs> there we go. All right, let's end in the next section, which is did the contemporary elements of Carol and Duffy's adaptation mesh well with the classical medieval text. Ryan, you have been teeing up this question. So we will let you finish your thoughts on this topic because you kind of started and then stopped and then started and then stopped. Yeah, so times. now I, I prep notes for this that I'm like, uh, which parts haven't I said yet? Oh, you're um, such a good TA. Uh, but so I think it's very well written, this adaptation, and I like a lot of what it's doing. But something you just said, Mech, kind of struck a chord with me about... Hmm. Uh, how using this as a good example to expose especially young audiences to what is the value of going back to history and like starting on these points. And I kind of touching back on what Izzy said earlier that I sort of responded to. I don't think this is a good exemplar of that because if you have like every man in theory should be considered a timeless piece. Obviously there's a lot of, historical specificity to the medievalism of it and the the catholicism of it and mm -hmm. a lot of things that we can maybe question the fact of the matter is it's about how everyone will die and how will you spend how what kind of life do you want to leave how do you want to leave the world mm -hmm. and that is as damn near close to universal as very few things come to be mm -hmm. so it has this element of you know what we always kind of claim we want our classics and our masterpieces to do and actually speak to us in all times not just mm -hmm. be buried under historical context to understand what even is this piece trying to say mm -hmm. but then i think if you have to adapt it in this way and put so much layers of this contemporary mm -hmm. just stuff on top of it i feel like it to me it represents an insecurity with that idea of this old thing can still speak to us Mm -hmm. and trying so hard to make it relevant and make it feel contemporary that I think something does get lost in the wash. And to Izzy's point earlier of like, does this even have to be every man? And no, I think it wouldn't would have been a lot better if this play wasn't called every man, if it wasn't maybe heavily inspired by every man, but it, it feels like it's trying to have its cake and eat it too. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the cake in this case being it is a medieval allegory about the the way of all flesh and how we all must die and account for our lives before we do. But the eat it too is also, but make it, make it not an allegory. Make every man a three-dimensional person who can't possibly stand in for every single person. And make, like we could say, his friends and family these sort of like interesting, well-drawn-out characters that make them suddenly like fail to be 
like kindred and cousins. That's just one person, in at least in the way that you know, if you were to stage it faithful to the page, it's not supposed to be a family with their own inner lives and wondering, oh, what are they doing? Um, and where do they come from? Wow, so much history we've imbued these characters with, but then it suddenly isn't every man anymore. It's this guy in particular. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not, bad, I'm not saying it's a bad but I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Most plays we consume are that it's telling a well-rounded story about a well-rounded individual yeah. that maybe has some resonances for everyone and anyone but we're okay with stories that do just focus on individuals but that's not the story that every man is every man can't be that story or it's no longer every man mm-hmm. and yeah it just it seems like a mistake to have even bothered re like doing every man if that's what you want to do with it but I liked it, and I'm conflicted about that because I thought it was a really interesting production. But I think how much more I might have liked it if it wasn't creating this cognitive dissonance in my mind about, well, what is this piece even trying to say? Can it say mm-hmm. the same thing that it would have said to a medieval audience? And if it's not saying that to us now, why bother doing every man anyway? Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. my kind of, yeah, messy thoughts on this adaptation. Love it. Max, I can see your wheels turning over there. What is your thoughts uh, on this? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, obviously, I think Ryan brings up a lot of good points. I, I think it's really, like, it's a, it's a ship of Theseus question mm-hmm. where, you know, you say, okay, it looks the same. It's got all the same parts. Everything's been replaced. Is it still the same thing? Um, and I don't really have a good answer for that. I mean, I, I do think that this question of adaptation is a very important question, a question that we encounter a lot. I will say that it, it's it's a different question if you're a theater historian versus if you're an audience member, I think. And, and, and a, a big thing there is, I mean, first of all, th- there's such a sort of long tradition of adapting this play. Like this play has been adapted for literally like centuries upon centuries. Um, and, each adaptation is different. Each adaptation is to its own specific time period. So I think to a degree, you know, taking issue with the adaptation, get it, but also that is sort of part of the point of, of a lot of medieval drama is that it is meant to be suited to the situation. And so to a degree, yeah, I think this was suited to the situation well. I think that the the writing is really good. The, the text is heightened in, in a really nice way. The poetry is, is sort of there and very present that it, it feels like it could be classical in a sense. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I also just think it's, it's about, yeah, like where your priorities are. If you, if you want to see the, the plain text of every man, this is not your production, but, but I think within that, like it's, yeah, it's it's really about where where your priorities are because at the end of the day, it, it, it comes down to the question of like what what makes a play good? Is it the writing? Is it the plot? Is it the characters? And so like I think when what we get here is, you know, some may say a facsimile of of every man, but I, I might say rather that it is using the skeleton, the framework of every man and and, and the language of a modern content. Because I would also say that, you know, they talk in the beginning a little bit about how he's 
who's going to stand in for every man that that I need to do every man and they they sort of make a point of that um and I think that you're right in a modern context we have no problem going Chiwetel for <laughs> like I'm gonna root for Chiwetelogy for you know what I mean but um I think that in terms of the medieval tradition that this play is coming from in terms of the fact that you know it really is one of the most notable medieval like liturgical or dramas or mystery plays to survive like you don't see anyone doing adaptations of the second shepherd's pageant you know what i mean what? Like, oh i will i, I don't know i know that one yeah. done that was, was always my like, favorite you don't see she would tell edgy for playing mac you know what i mean like i would love to see like, him play mac but you're right. I mean, it would be an interesting show but i i think that like there is a degree to which it's obviously recognizable it's obviously got something spoken or unspoken that that is relatable and and audiences are able to connect to and i think when it comes down to it that's really what matters i i agree with you that you know like i think the pedantics of calling it something rather than something else is is important to a degree but when it comes down to it it's got the spirit it's got the moral of every man and so i think when we are discussing morality plays and and certainly adaptation of morality plays that should be the the core of the argument um yeah does that make sense it does mm -hmm. yeah. i'm chewing on it because I, I like the, the ship of theseus analogy that you brought up here because i do yeah. think we are very much teetering on the edge where half of the wood of the ship has been changed but that structure yeah. is still the same yeah and we are like I, I don't know at what point it does tip into that point where it is no longer the same ship but yeah. I do think, yeah, it's, and like, I'm not even just like necessarily harping on the title of, oh, they should have called it something else. Although that is usually the surefire way that we know we're dealing with an adaptation versus an appropriation. Yeah. But like, I think of like most Wooster Group productions don't take the title of the original play that they're inspired by, but it's still very clear that that is the source of inspiration. But yeah. nobody says, oh, I saw... And, I don't know, I saw Three Sisters because I saw the Wooster Groups brace up. You know you're walking into something very different, and I think there is maybe a dissonance in treating this like an original version of Everyman. Right. And uh, something I do on many panels, I've maybe been a little peeved by things to me that don't know what they're trying to say thematically or maybe right. contradict their own themes. And uh, two big episodes that I really had this problem on were Oklahoma and All My Sons, <laughs> um, which uh, both plays I enjoy, but like ones that, oh my God, if you actually look at what are these plays trying to say, they kind of trip on themselves at the finish line, in my opinion. Um, and I think this adaptation of Everyman by turning the original source into something that I would say it's not doesn't get to really I, I don't feel like it satisfies the themes of the original and I don't know what it's trying to say different while it's still anchoring itself to the specter of those themes I suppose hmm. Izzy what are your thoughts on all this um I think for me hold on I have to gather my thoughts um but I I think what trips me up about this production of every man and like the clinging to the medievalness and to that uh like kind of like origin of the text um it doesn't 
work, in my opinion, um, because as like our values are so different. And I think that the concept of an everyman speaks to a time and a place where it was way more communal living. Like this, this was like, you saw yourself and your neighbor and you saw yourself in, in the people in your communities. And like it, one decision didn't just affect you. It affected every person around you. Whereas now the trend is much more individualistic. Like we only live our lives for ourselves and no one else. Um, and I think that in the, in the wanting to make this text speak to a modern audience, what they did is take those uh, roles that were originally meant to literally encompass every person and say, no, that we need to make them an individual, someone with like their own story and like their own uh, objectives and past and, and future and all this stuff. And like, that's great. That is a way to adapt it to, to make it speak to this audience. But in, in doing that, it completely contradicts a lot of what the original text mm -hmm was written to you know say or do or like it, it's like an integral piece of the theme like it, that's why it works every man works because it is every single person um and when you take that out and put it into a context where our society is like so like based on the one person like it kind of stops working that much and that's i think where it trips for me um I don't think it's a bad production. I think it's really, really good. Um, but I think that that's where, for me, like the flaw of it is. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think it sh it's something that shouldn't have existed or anything like that, or, or that they could have even made it better in any sense. Like, I, mm -hmm. I just think that that's maybe even if like they had touched on that it within the text or within the play, I don't know. Um, but I, again, I agree with Ryan and like, I think that there's something in the title of like every man, like they should have called it something different, you know, because they like every man didn't have to be called every man because it just wasn't about every man anymore. It was about this one guy. Yes. I don't know. That's kind of where I'm falling with this. And I'm, yeah. I don't know if that really makes. It does make sense. Yeah. It does. It yeah. actually kind of ties into what my note is, which is it's not as seamless as I think it thinks it is. Like, uh, uh, like the text is sometimes very classical and very lyrical, but then you get certain phrases like my colonoscopy bag. And it's like, that's like a freaking clunker of a line. It doesn't flow with the rest of the text at all. But there are other ones where it is universal, like, like, um, like, like filming dynamics of, 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 uh, of strained families of the whole thing of, I mean, my family has, go, has gone through this with like the aging parents and the siblings kind of squabbling over responsibilities. That is universal. But then there are other moments where it's like this scene behind me here, this wealthy scene where it's like a lot of blue collar people will not know what it's like to throw money in the air and party hard like that and sniff cocaine and whatever. Well, and the, But that scene, the one you have right behind you, that's an allegory. That is actually, yes. it is that is a way of taking something medieval and making giving it the aesthetic yes. of something contemporary. Yes. The scene with the with the family, I love that scene to bits. It, I shouted it out scene. earlier, but I'm like, wait, is this still every man? Like it this looks like I, Long Day's I, Journey into Night at this point, like or something. I do think it's every lines. man in the sense of it, it, it's a universal concept that as this aging population gets older, a lot of families are facing the same issues. So I, I that's where I go, there's some universality, but there's other moments where 
there isn't universality. And I think because of that, it's a back and forth thing where, where, where some parts feel like generic rich people, bad with money, exploitative, you know, oh, look down at the poor, you know, oh, so sad, garbage piles. But then other moments, it is specific. And then it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird tug of war. So I, I definitely don't think it's a perfect, well-meshed adaptation. I, th- I think it's a bit of a, a mixed bag adaptation that works really well at some points and other points it doesn't quite hit its mark and misses its mark. Max, I can see you wanting to chime in. Yeah, well, no, I actually, I wanted to talk about something from earlier. Izzy, I I appreciate your point, but I want to respectfully disagree with you because I think this idea, can you hear me? Um, I think this idea that, um, I I think the notion of an an individualistic society is inherently flawed in a lot of reasons, for a lot of reasons, especially in a theatrical context, theater is living proof that we are not an individualistic society. Theater is like as hard proof as you can get that we actually have shared experiences, that we care about what other people think and that we care about other people's uh, experiences in relation to our own. I think that, yes, there is this sort of, not necessarily selfish, but, I'll say self-centered with with not necessarily the uh, uh, context on it, but this where we center ourselves in our worlds. And that's a very modern, I think, thought process. Like, I think that there is something you're totally right that in a lot of the ways that we think about ourselves, it's about what am I doing that is affecting other people? And what is it that other people are doing that is affecting me? It's It's, we center ourselves in that discussion. But... I think part of the reason that this play, I think part of what this play is trying to say is that ultimately that that is not the case. Ultimately, there are these people, these sort of parts of our lives that are inherently and irreversibly affected by our decisions, whether we like it or not. And that, you know, I, I think that the, that, that we as human beings, it's it's such a strive for identity, the reason that we, go to theater that this everyman character still can exist for us and that we all become everyman in that we all want to be the person that people look at in that way that we all want to have that um sort of we all want to have that individualization but we want to be the only individual we want everyone else to think oh that's an individual you know what i mean and so i think that it's part of the reason that this play is, is really interesting in a modern context. And, you know, when talking about the, the actual writing of it, if you look at something like, for example, Terminus by, um, I can't remember the playwright's name. I don't know if any of you guys remember the playwright's name, but it's an Irish playwright, which, which has really impressive um, metered text and rhyming text as well. And, And that sort of really flawless heightened writing. I think the, poetry of this is flawed in a lot of ways and it is a bit clunky and it does devolve into sort of contemporary speak but that's part of what's beautiful about it as well and that that's how we would do it if we were forced to let you know live in an allegory i think there is something sort of you know breaking from the individualization of our culture in this in this play that it takes a guy who everyone is like 
that's the guy. We love that guy. We want to be like that guy. That guy makes a lot of money. And it puts him in relation to, uh, you know, the, you know, knowledge, the beggar or, or the cleaning lady that like, there are these people around us who our story affects them and, and, and their stories affect ours. And so framing ourselves in this individualistic way is very destructive. And I think that's the, that's the journey that we see every man take over the course of this play. And I think a very notable scene is that scene where the sort of the street cleaner or whatever, the tent yes. comes yes. and takes all of them to the afterlife, essentially, where it's one of the few moments in the play that we do see the different reactions that I think the ensemble sort of takes on the role of every man. And all of them are this character. And we feel like we could have been watching any of them, but that their reactions to death and their reaction to being taken and, and, and feeling like it's not their time to go is so individual, but it could be like, it could be any of us, even, even if our reaction is individualistic, we all have the same fear. You know what I mean? We have the same fear of being taken before our time. That's it. <laughs> Izzy or Ryan care to respond? Uh, I, I would maybe like to hear Izzy respond more so than myself since you were the one who was respectfully disagreed with. Um, I do feel like we will get into maybe elements of this individualism in both of the subsequent questions, so I'm happy to uh, bite my tongue for now. No, I, I, I like I, I understand um, what you mean. I think that I was kind of more thinking of uh, the like the way it would be received by an, an audience. Like for me, it felt like the the individualization or the characterization of each thing that would normally be like a, a kind of catch-all character um, was an attempt to bring it to a modern lens. But yeah, I do think it's well-written and it has other intent other than that. But I think that with the context in my head of like, this play like feels like it's set in the medieval times, but like now we're just changing it completely. And like, I don't know, that's kind of where the dissonance was for me. Like the, it kind of like was hitting up, but, but no, I think what you said was, I mean, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think, you know, part of it also is that like, you know, when we talk about how perhaps medieval times, we might, they might've relied on other people more you know i think in the way that they might have relied on other people more for they, they might have relied on people for bread we rely on people for validation and it's like it's a it's a different transaction but it's still transactional you know what i mean yeah, yeah. wonderful wonderful well, izzy i'll let you start the next question which is do the religious specifically christian themes of the play still resonate in our contemporary secular society I was really interested. I thought it would be more Christian. And then I was like, wait, but this is a very like secular audience, I guess. So like, it doesn't make sense. Um, so I was interested to see how they would do that. Um, I feel like, I don't know, there were parts of it that I was like, they tried to really like pull it back like a lot. Like there were a lot of like themes of like environmentalism at the beginning and in that tsunami part, which was interesting, but I was like, I don't know like it felt it felt weird it felt like they were trying to like bring it back like I really really liked that last bit like that scene where everyone had like the same blue suit on and like it was a really beautiful like ensemble piece but then um they started talking about like very like secular things to be thankful for like like bodies and and things and and that's wonderful and lovely but it just was such a like turn mm -hmm. and I was like oh 
because this is the point where like you would have gone into like divine adoration or, or whatever right into like oh I love God, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they were like, we can't do that. So we're just going to instead praise the body and praise the experience. And, and which was also beautiful. It, it, I really liked it. Um, but it, yeah, it was just very strange and jarring again with the context of like it being a morality play and being a very Christian play to begin with. Um, so yeah, uh, the one line that stuck out to me um, I don't know if I wrote it down. I probably did. Oh, religion is a man-made thing. It, it too will pass. Like, I was like, I wish I saw more of that um, it, in it, but it felt like it was just like, we're going to stick with like the concept of God instead of like mm-hmm. um, talking more about, you know, the, the human experience. I don't know. Um, so that's kind of where it was weird to me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Ryan? Uh, So I have a lot of thoughts about this one. Shocker, I know. Um, (laughs) In the 1960s, George Steiner wrote a very interesting book called The Death of Tragedy. And that's my starting point for kind of approaching this question because... Of course it is. Well, his uh, one of his many arguments in this very interesting book, I'd recommend it if you haven't encountered it, but uh, one of his arguments is that Christianity essentially made tragedy impossible because if tragedy is relying on this bleakness of the ending, the fact that there can be no hope, and that's the hole we will eventually descend into, Christianity rendered that moot, because we, well, if we believe in the salvation, that there is a life after death, and it will be good if you were a good person, it will, yeah, it fundamentally makes it impossible to see a play the the way that an ancient Greek audience would have seen that tragic element. Um, and every man is the perfect example of that. It's not a tragedy. It ends with his redemption and his uh, return to this kind of positive idea when the pearly gates, you know, in Abraham's bosom or whatever you want to call it. Uh, around the same time that George Steiner wrote this book, W.H. W. Auden, famous writer, wrote an essay called Christian Tragedy. And it was mainly about Moby Dick, but he came up with an interesting theory in it about... Greek tragedy versus Christian Christian tragedy. Uh, what's the difference between these two? And he put forward this theory, and you can agree or disagree with it, but what he said is that Greek tragedy is the tragedy of inevitability, that, you know, things must go this way. Oedipus could not escape his fate. He must kill his father and marry his mother. There's no other way it could have right. gone differently. Christian tragedy is the tragedy of possibility. What makes it tragic is that it could have gone differently, but doesn't. Ahab could have decided any time, you know what, I'm going to turn this boat around and not kill this whale, but uh, gosh darn it, I just got to do it. And we, the reader, know that, no, Ahab, you got to turn the boat around and you could have done differently. This isn't inevitable. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of other interesting stuff in this essay. He talks about how it's a perfect, Moby Dick is a perfect template for a tragedy because we have our hero Ahab and Ishmael represents the chorus and cool Mm -hmm. essay, cool book that I mentioned earlier, like check it all out, all you folks. But I think at the crux of both of these ideas that I bring up is why we maybe in our secular age, we're moving away even from that Christian ideal. And I don't want to say we're maybe returned to something of the Greek idea of inevitability, but we no longer find, at least like broad stroke speaking of secular society, no longer find that salvation as the, you know, positive outcome that we see Mm -hmm. every man coming to. 
And we don't necessarily see this. We do see that there's something inevitable about every man's fate because it is inevitable that we will all die. Um, so I don't know, just thinking in terms of this matrix of different theories of tragedy, I don't know uh, how how a non-Christian audience is necessarily supposed to interface with this play. Mm-hmm. But I do also think that there's something about Christianity that might be easy to secularize. And I think the reason for that is that so much of what we refer to as secular society is built upon Christian foundations. Um, mm-hmm. and so we might not necessarily resonate with the specific Catholic sacraments that every man goes through, but we can get behind the vague moral of do good deeds. Cause that's all you take with you when you're gone. Yeah. Um, and I I think, yeah, there's something to be said about our ability to, because we're just so inundated with Christian culture, even if it's been sanded around the edges, we do see most of our morality, as, you know, people like to tell us, comes from the Judeo-Christian ethics, although it doesn't really, but we're, if we're told <laughs> it enough times, then it's likely, you're likely to believe it and kind of it takes some of those values with you, even if you remove the the afterlife from the equation. Um, but something that I express caution with, and maybe part of my thinking, going back to the previous question of why even do every man today, if you don't necessarily believe in the same dogmas that motivated its original writing. And I, part of me struck by the fact that, well, the Catholic Church does still have a lot of power and influence in society today, maybe not as much you know, in our little circles, or I'm speaking at least for myself, but um, I would be circles. <laughs> but well, yeah, like uh, certainly our circles. Or Izzy, maybe you would like to disagree, and that's uh, entirely your prerogative, but or Mac too, for that matter. But um, I would be very mindful of if I were directing every man to not necessarily pander to the religious audience, let alone vindicate them. Mm-hmm. And an example that comes to my mind, obviously, it's a very different type of religious story is, well, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, which is, uh, well, it's this, you know, very strange text for those who've had the misfortune of seeing it. But, um, well, it is essentially a feature length adaptation of one line from the Gospels that Jesus was flogged. And that is what we're dealing with here. But so many people look at this text and think mm-hmm. that it is. Uh, speaking to them religiously and having this kind of impact on you know this moment in the culture and redeeming secular society through interfacing with religion Mm -hmm. through a text of this kind and i worry that i'm not saying this production did it but just speaking vaguely about the text i worry that fetishizing every man and specifically the very christian journey he goes on could certainly vindicate that audience and that's not what i'd like to see on our stages today <laughs> sorry that's a lot of roundabout thoughts but anyone if anything there jumped out to anyone feel free to respond yeah i mean i'll happily tag in here because sure. i mean i think what's neat about this production is that it didn't lean too heavily on catholicism and christianity specifically like it more stuck to the moral of the concept of death and live a good life, you know, like that type of overall concept, as you said, Ryan, like they kind of took your thought process there of don't go too much into religion, but go into the, the thematicness of what the story is about. And I think that's the way to go about the six. Because I, I think you're right. As, as our generation has proven in recent surveys that we are the least religious generation, 
that's out there right now. We are we are furthest away from from being like I, I identifying as one particular secular religion. Um, that I think that's the way you kind of have to do this play is what's thematically like what's the storytelling? And I mean, I think the way they kind of hinted at some of the uh, Christian like Christian messaging in there, but didn't quite go as direct as, as as if you read the original text i think that's the way you do it because yeah i don't think our generation would particularly like a very over overtly religious piece like that like i i think our generation is very much like we're seeing that with with the burning of the churches right now in response to the residential schools here in canada we are seeing all types of ways that our generation is very much turning i don't want to say turning our backs but certainly becoming more worldly less individualized by it by 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 a particular belief or religion now that being said there are still parts of our generations that do hold true those beliefs but i think what this play is doing is or is this adaptation that we've watched has tried to um find the better balance of this and focus more on the story of live a good life and move forward basically that's me that's that's as simple as i can make my rambling notes i wish that i could find that simple yeah, I don't know, Max. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, I think although we do not live in an explicitly religious society, the echoes of religion are all around us all the time, and so oh, it's certainly, yeah, it's certainly not not it's certainly not foreign to us. Yes. I would also say that you know, despite the fact we may might not live in a religious society, we certainly live in a spiritual society in a lot of mm-hmm. contexts, and I think that. This adaptation of the play does a very good job of handling the spiritual in a way that is not explicitly religious, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that every man obviously comes from a religious tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, And and those with knowledge of the play would be aware of that. But I think that just sort of taking the play at face value, it it is spiritual, but not not explicitly religious. Um, And yeah, I mean, like, I think there's a lot to be gleaned here on in terms of that that sort of I don't know how to say it religious spiritual otherworldly nature mm-hmm. of the play um I, I also think that you know in a modern context and if this is sacrilegious I apologize but like we can take this as fantasy you know what I mean mm-hmm. that that there is a degree to which sure you know we can understand that these stories are very important to a lot of people, very important to a lot of cultures, very important to modern literature. But to a degree, we understand them to be what they are, morality plays, right? Plays th- things with sort of morals on how to live your life rather than actual fact. And, and you know, obviously in, in when the plays were originally performed, a lot of this was taken as fact, you know? Like, if you don't, re- if you don't reckon with God, you're gonna go to hell. Um, we have a more nuanced view of sort of, uh, well, we being sort of, I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a very broad blanket statement. But I think in, in modern context, there is a more nuanced view of not just religion, but other views. And so I think looking at it through that lens, it, it, it we can go, okay, it might not be real, it might not be you know, factual, but it still has a core that is meaningful and important uh, and, and, and has something to offer to our life. So I do think that, you know, I, I, I mean, like in my own writing and my own work, I always go back to 
not just the Torah and the Bible, but like the Ramayana and the Bhagavad Gita, like these religious texts are fundamental to how we talk about literature, what we know about literature. I mean, it's, all drama comes from religious ritual to a certain degree. Ryan, you might disagree with me on that a little bit, but I think, you know, to, to overgeneralize, like we, we can trace origins of drama back to a ritualistic society. Um, whether it be, you know, the, the Dithyram contest of Greek theater or, you know, Sanskrit drama, you know, like I said, and, and sort of the recounting of these tales from religious books like the Ramayana. Um, that's where mystery plays start off as well. And so I think that um, it's, it's hard to divorce it from that, but it's not impossible to still glean something out of it in a secular society. Yeah. Yeah. Something I might want to like add to just throw it on the pile of this discussion. If you out of way, Ryan. Like, I think the fact that this play is so Christian at its roots challenges the potential to which every man can even be every man, because to the medieval like British or at least medieval European society, where everybody you know is Christian just like you, mm-hmm. uh, it there would be no question about, yes, we will all go through this journey, that this is a shared experience that every man, all of us, will go through. Um, but we know just out of religious diversity, like that that's just not the case, that it is true that we will all die, but every religion has very different views of what death means and what this crossing of threshold is. Is it a negative or a positive experience? Um, and I think I actually have this interesting quote here that I pull. It's from, uh, this is the third edition of the Norton Anthology of Drama, um, uh, the most recent edition. And uh, Ryan has quotes. Um, yeah, I, I just thought this was interesting. It's from the introduction to every man in this anthology. And it's, it says, um, for scholars have determined that one of every man's core narrative elements, the testing of friends in an hour of need, is Buddhist rather than Western in origin. And I think like that's an interesting take but i also think if we think about what death means to buddhism it is in a sort of religious or philosophical context in which reincarnation uh, or we have i don't know i don't i'm maybe not as informed on buddhism to maybe make the statement i want to make here but <laughs> i i do think yeah we're it's a nice gesture that they're trying to say here about the universality in different religious contexts that we can draw in here but so many different religions are going to approach concepts like this so in so many different ways that I think we have to default to this individualization of every man if we want it to still work in a Christian way, because our culture no longer is monolithic enough to think of every man as believing the same things about death and coming to the same conclusions based on the religious experience that our character, Ev, in this case, goes through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, we could have a whole religious debate on this thing, but... <laughs> I don't think that's the time or the or the place for that one. We'll leave we'll leave it there. Let us know your thoughts in the comments. But let's get into the last question of the night, which is some produ- some past productions have renamed this play and its titular character to everyone, every woman, etc. How might it affect the story to change the character's name and or gender? What are your thoughts on the production? Uh, sorry. What are your thoughts on a production? How did I write this? What are you? What are your thoughts on on a production today staying true to the original title and casting, as we saw in this one? I will let 
Ryan, you start this one. Sure, why not? Um, so right off the bat, I say it's interesting knowing that we have encountered other productions that rename it to everyone, very gender neutral, or even every mm-hmm. woman, uh, more much more gender specific. I think this production, it's interesting that it chose to go with the original Everyman, and part of that might be the cachet of the title that we sort of litigated in a previous question. Um, but I think this production gets away with it because, as I've already said enough times, we he isn't really everyone. He is really just this one man. So to it's already a bit of a false statement to call him every man in my eyes. But he he certainly is a man. I don't see this as someone who represents the diversity of humankind, let alone gender, but even like in every which way that that sentence or sentiment might apply. Um, I think if we want to spit some Simone de Beauvoir facts here, um, it, there's something interesting about productions that have renamed this play to every woman with the female protagonist, because, well, as Simone de Beauvoir tells us in The Second Sex, all women can be included under the banner of every man, because in the medieval context that would have referred to mankind which we would now call Mm -hmm. humankind but men can't really be included under the banner of a play called every woman that would be specifically about the female segment of the population if the play were to be and that's just uh it's unfortunate that that is the case with just the way our language and our culture has developed under very patriarchal lines but Mm -hmm. i think it would create very different connotations to refer to a play like this as every woman with its female protagonist for this reason, I am very much in support of the gender-neutral everyone uh, for not just the reasons I've already stated, but also because gender is no longer a binary. And I think to go from every man to every woman kind of just plays into that factor of what just this binarism of gender and where do non-binary folks fit into this every man? Do they not also go through some kind of journey of this kind? Do they not also die at the end of their lives? And I I think something that it makes me think about is I've seen more recent productions of As You Like It that take the famous line, all the world's world's a stage and all the men and women merely players and change it to all the people in it merely players. And I think there is value to gender neutralizing the canon, not to revise history and say that there was always these gender neutral sensibilities throughout various moments of the past but to realize that we aren't living in that type of binary culture anymore. And that if we want to treat this play the way the medieval audience would have and say that this is about everyone, we should call it everyone because mankind is kind of just shitty as a term to use to refer to every man or everyone. Mm-hmm. Izzy, what are your thoughts? Yes. Pretty much the same. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I was, I think the only really thing that I had written down about this was that I'm pretty sure like every man referred to like mankind and would have encompassed, you know, every, everyone. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a weird language to use with its connotations to, as Ryan said, like a, a gender binary. So I feel like, yeah, everyone would have, like, I, I think that's, that's a good way to go about it. Um, I also think that if you want to tell a very specific story, you you could. I mean, you could adapt this play however many ways you want. You want to adapt it. It's like a really old text. It's really, it's it's 
it spoke to the people that it was supposed to speak to and we can try to uh, adapt it so it can continue to speak to people because if you do believe that it has some kind of like truth and, and value to it, which I do. Um, so yeah, like I don't have much more to add here. Like mm -hmm. obviously like it would change uh, the context uh, if, if you renamed it, if you changed uh, like the gender pronoun or if you, if you, uh, if you change the person, um, what would it say? And I think that's more of like a directing question and, and, a, and a dramaturgy question of like, do you want to do this play? If so, why? What are you going to do to it, change it to it that's going to make it interesting and, and speak to an audience now? So, yeah. Yeah. Max, thoughts? I, uh, I know I get one um, F bomb during the show. <laughs> uh, and I can honestly say that I could not give a flying fuck what this play is called. Um, like, I, I think ultimately, when it comes to sort of titles and labels in this context, I think it's, I think it's detrimental. I just think it's not the conversation that we need to necessarily be having around this, because when you talk about sort of what's in a name, a lot of that context is how you present yourself, right? That, that you know, it's, it's very interesting because I, I have been having a lot of these very present conversations with students in my class who have been taking on new names and new genders and, and sort of coming, not, not new genders rather, but coming into sort of uh, their um, realized identities and taking on new names to, um, to exemplify that. And that is a, a real calling card. You know what I mean? Because when you look at a person and they say, hello, my name is blank, that's your first introduction to that person. With a play, it's different because you get the title and then immediately you get the whole thing, right? That I can understand that, you know, perhaps in marketing, it's a, it's a different context. But, you know, when we're talking about the play in and of itself, as you guys have all said, you know, it's, it's a, and I've, as I've said, it's a morality play. It's a play that is supposed to be universal. And so in that context, I think that it, it, you know, we have to take whatever the title is at face value, call it whatever you want. Every man, every woman, everyone, call it every, it doesn't matter. It, it, it's, we're, we're still getting the same content. We're still getting the same context. And ultimately it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, I think the, merit of it is that yes okay perhaps it, it helps certain theater goers feel more comfortable uh more um sort of identified as as sort of members of the theater and obviously you know i'm coming at this as a as a cis you know white guy and so i i that that colors my you know reading of this but i i do think that across the board and it doesn't just apply here but you know, we get so bogged down in, in the in the sort of technicality and once again, the pedantic nature of these sort of labels that we miss the actual content of what is being presented. And so like, I think to say, would a title change something? No, it wouldn't change anything. It, it, it might change, I mean, when we're talking about the play, it might change how sort of, you know, the play is marketed or initially received by certain um, uh, by certain patrons as like, oh, what's this show that I haven't heard of before? But 
you know, I think when it comes down to it, every man is a famous title and a famous sort of literary construct as well. You can cast whoever you want in that role. Like, I don't think it matters if every man, everyone, what we call it, is played by a man, a woman, a non-binary actor. Like, I think that that what matters most is the, the moral and the sort of content of the play rather than what we choose to call it. And I think that that is, you know, a, a good <laughs> a good lesson for life as well. So, yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't disagree with what you're saying here, Max. I do think to some extent by the same logic that your, say, trans and non-binary students are able to reclaim an aspect of their identity by choosing a new name that better reflects their identity. I think if we do want to uh, release this play from the, say, patriarchal shackles that it comes to us in, there is, I would argue, some reclamatory power to changing the name to something that's more appropriate or suitable to the uh, the neutrality of gender that we would approach that same moral with. Because um, I see what you're uh, advocating here for of not caring so much about the name could trap us, I'm not saying us specifically, but trap patrons and artists in this idea of, well, it's a famous name, it's been around a long time, why can't we just keep calling it that? Why do we need to change it? And I feel like try telling a trans person that about the name they were given at oh. birth. And I obviously it's very different stakes here, but I do think we can fall into the same ideological messiness of that. And I, oh. I don't want that for this piece. And I think I don't want that for the moral of this piece being that it does apply to everyone. And I don't want anyone to feel limited by the gender terms used within the title. Yeah. Or the casting for that matter. I, I, I agree with that. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I think absolutely ideologically, you know, it's a different conversation, but I think it, it also, you know, when we talk about the individual versus the, the the piece, the 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 artistic piece, you know, when we talk about the individual, rebranding is a whole sort of process that you know is a psychological process, a physical process. It's it's, it's a strenuous process in many contexts. I think when it comes to theater, theater has existed for so long and in so many forms and shapes and contexts that we can use the already established terminology and criteria that exist and change the meaning of it um, to suit our purposes because we know that just changing the meaning of a term is not gonna alter the identity of the form. You know what I mean? So that it, it, it's, in that case, it is less personal. I, I totally understand. And, and, and that being said, you know, I, I agree with you. that there. I think it's huge merit to de you know masculinizing the canon i think that, that that there totally is merit to that and and you know if if that's sort of the criteria that we're going by that okay we're going to strive to make our our western canon and, and canon at large more gender neutral you know more welcoming to um or, or more more general and, and more you know uh, i think that is um a noble and worthy cause in and of itself i don't think it i still don't think it necessarily alters the play like i think that that changing titles is a hundred percent something that we can go and do and 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 might have a lot of value and worth but when we're talking about like content i don't think you know 
me going it's like you know if you look at 12 angry men versus 12 angry women or 12 angry people like i'm still going to see people argue in a room you know what i mean like it's still <laughs> there be, is something to be said about wanting half of those jurors to be female yeah. and if you do kind yeah. of play 12 angry men it'll you you're less likely to cast female performers in that role because well it's in the title it's the 12 men yeah, and I, I but the, once again, like I think I would say that that is more the result of artistic decisions rather than just a title. You know what I mean? Like I think you know, as a director, I could go, yeah, sure, I'm going to cast six women and six men and but uh, twelve angry men still, and it would still be the same play. And, and, but I mean, yeah, obviously the casting makes a difference, but like the 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 conflict play the um root sort of moral of the play is still going to be the same it's it's you know it's still going to be a question of trust and and morality and and mm-hmm. you know uh, um a sort of long long held beliefs in, in every man it's it's still going to be a story of you know uh, a fall and redemption right like it's we're, we're still gonna have that core i think that you know if it's a conversation of okay like i said you know okay we're gonna sort of you, you know pair back on these sort of gender heavy this gender heavy terminology that's one conversation but I don't think you can necessarily I I don't think the conversation necessarily has to get about specific plays like if we're going to do it we we should just do it you know what I mean and I would agree with you to an extent that we don't want changing the title to just be a cosmetic change that has no substantive impact on uh, the actual substance of the piece, but I think if yeah. you are going to change the substance of the piece, uh, sometimes a change of that cosmetic element is appropriate in kind. Totally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. <laughs> I mean, go for it. <laughs> well, I mean, for me, I went this this piece is so versatile and so malleable that I wrote. You could cast Chutelegi for it. You could cast Whoopi Goldberg. You could cast uh, Elliot Page. You could cast. Uh, Denzel Washington, you could cast Tom Hanks in this role. And it's basically, it's still the same story. Changing the lead character and who plays the lead character doesn't overly affect the way the story goes and how you read the story. Because it's still about a person experiencing death. And that's kind of the crux of that piece. Uh, the title, I go, once again, it, it's, it's up to the creative team. What they feel is necessary I mean, if they want to stick true to the title for the sake of marketing, sure. And they cast Whoopi Goldberg anyway and still call it Everyman. Just put a director's note they're saying. Everyman in, 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 like, in like medieval literature meant mankind. Just because I'm sure some audiences will go, what do you mean? But, I'm, yeah. but I think Everyone is also a fine title. I think it's more when you get into other pieces, like, like, like Max is saying, the 12 Angry Men, and you start changing that title around from 12 Angry Men to 12 Angry Men to 12 Angry Jurors. Um, that's when you start having to think about, okay, what am I saying with the casting? What am I wanting to do? What is that story saying? Um, that's where I think you do have to be. I, I think, once again, we can't treat every piece the same way. And I think blanketing going, we can do it to every piece. I think I go, I, that's where I go. We got to think, do our dramaturgical due diligence, look at the piece and think about what are you saying when you make that change? What impact does it have? And especially nowadays when we are making these changes to be more inclusive, we do have to make those conscientious thoughts of what does the change mean? 
and, and, and we can't just blanket it for the sake of blanketing it. We have to think, particularly with these older texts, we do have to have that thought in our head of what are, what are we seeing? But I think with every man, I think, or every one, whatever, whatever you want to call this piece, I think it is a universal, malleable piece that is a little bit more flexible in what you do with it versus say something else. Um, yeah. I mean, overall, it's it, this. This is just, as I said, it's a very malleable piece. Ergo, you can kind of bend it, call it what you want, and the message is still the same. That doesn't change compared to say something like Oedipus. You change Oedipus's gender to something else. Well, now you're changing. Well, now, 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 now you're going to a bit more of a bigger question of what are you trying to say with this? Because I mean, there's the whole Oedipus complex that came from that play. Like, there's a whole bit more things you got to think about. But with this one, I think it's so neutral enough. Uh, as Ryan said, it came from a 10-page play. Like, it's so, I don't want to say bland, but so flat. It's well. allegory. Yeah, it's allegory. Yeah. There are two exactly. It's allegory. There's not much there that's going to, like, force the uh, force creative choices like that. It, it, it's so blank. It's, it's that white canvas of, we have this story. We can paint it however we want to paint it. Um. But yeah, I mean, once again, I think this piece is great because it all boils down to what has behind Max's head there. We are all just the same skeleton, no matter no matter what. We, we all face death at the same time in our lives. We all will have to face our makers, whatever they may be, whatever you think they may be in the end. Our time is on this earth is short. Our, our, our hourglasses only run a certain amount of time. So we all will face what every man faces in this play at some point in our lives. So. There go. Ominous a note to end on. Is anyone <laughs> doing? Take it we all oh, die. Yeah, we all die, and I mean that. And that's, and that's the power of this piece. Yeah. So that. Yeah. So there we go. So yeah. Well, there we go, everybody. We'll leave you on that lovely note. Think about that. Think about death. Go home and think about your death and what it means to you. Are you living your life to the fullest, or 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 um? Do you need some reevaluation? Who knows. Either way, Max, where can people find and follow you? Um, uh, people can follow me on Instagram, uh, mackerman12. Uh, I generally post updates about my own personal work there. Um, for my company, we are uh, Dan at Dandelion Theater TO on Instagram, Dandelion Theater on Facebook, uh, Dandelion Theater TO.com. Um, we will have some new updates shortly. So uh, shoot us a follow, stay updated. We're going to be doing a lot of fun stuff this year, so I'm I'm really excited for people to see that. Woot! Exciting, exciting, Izzy. Um, most of my social media is private, but I I think my Instagram, I guess, at Izzy Who. Um, I'm not really doing anything mm -hmm. exciting, so you can just see <laughs> my selfies and my breakfast mm -hmm. if you, you would like. You have two plays coming up next year. Yeah, but like I can't do marketing for that yet. Like. Wait till February. It's going to be great. Okay. We'll hang in there. Ryan, give us a classic Ryan Barakovich send up. It's we all not have. that classic. I'm not active on social classic. media. There are more accounts now than there used to be, but I, I don't need you to follow them. So just send all that love to Cup of Hemlock Theater instead. Hey, that's the show you're watching right now. <laughs> like, share, and subscribe. And, you know, yeah, it, yeah it's, it's fine. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, you can find follow me at Mackenzie Horner. You can find uh, my, I call my musical antics on my other 
uh, forum before the Downbeat of Musical podcast, where we are now in season four. So we are in the midst of releasing that. Uh, if you do want to follow us and take us on the go, uh, subscribe to the Cup of Hemlock podcast feed, and you can get the audio-only versions of that as well. So check that on out too when you have a chance. And let us know what you thought of our Nicholas Nickleby miniseries. And if there's another miniseries you want Ryan and I, Ryan, Ryan and I to tackle, uh, as, uh, as that was a fun nine-part adventure we went on there. Who knows what we'll do next? Stay tuned. Uh, <laughs> other than that, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great rest of your day, your night, your afternoon, and we will see you all very soon with our next episode. Thanks so much. Bye.